This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and D6 Conference hosted a track called Family Discipleship. How are you doing with family discipleship at your church? Well, D6 Conference has put together a free assessment to help you discern exactly how your church is doing at equipping parents to disciple their kids. This free assessment is called the Church Health Assessment, and it's just 30 questions. They've even included scoring instructions, so you can do the whole thing for free, and it's self-guided. Download this at discipleship.org d6. It's a PDF available at discipleship.org d6. That's the letter D and the numeral six. Now here's one of the track sessions from D6. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Shirley, how are you, sir? Good to see you. Just talking about DBU. So that's right. Oh, it's good to see everybody back this morning. Everybody good? Good deal. How many people in here are morning people? Let me see your hands. Mine's going down. Okay. Yes. I told somebody earlier, if God had intended me to see the sunrise, he'd have scheduled it for a little bit later in the day. So I'm, I'm not a morning person, so anything that I say this morning cannot be held against me. There's my disclaimer, okay? Well, I hope everybody rested well. Uh, was there, did you feel a sense of like overwhelming data you know, overload yesterday from hearing different speakers or things? Or did you walk away with one or two nuggets that you really loved? So good, good audiences yesterday. Really loved uh, the interaction here. Uh, we're beginning this morning with the title, Positioning Your Church for All Generations Part 2. If you didn't get Part 1, don't, don't be concerned over it. The Part 1, we talk through how the generations interacted together and what ways that genera- generations can actually do generational discipleship yesterday. We introduced uh, Dr. Ross's uh, ministry in thirds in that group, and we talked about crossing over and peer level uh, uh, discipling across the generations and what that looks like. And a promise today, this morning, is how do we lead organizations through change? Uh, Many, many books that we read tell us what we should do. They don't tell us how to get people there. And that's what I want us to talk about. It's one of the most difficult things in leadership that we face today is leading change. And so that's the, that's the topic for uh, where we're going today. And just like yesterday, each of the sessions that I'm talking through, if you want to dive in a little bit deeper, uh, I will give you recommended resources through this. And the content is based upon the book that I wrote, The DNA of D6, which we have down at our booth. And you can kind of dive in a little bit deeper. This one comes from Chapter 11. It kind of culminates. We walk you through in the DNA of D6, what does family ministry look like? What does generational discipleship look like? How, what are the major components of it? And then chapter 11 says, okay, how do you lead the church into adopting this? Because the problem, as we noted, is that all of you are at a conference or you're reading a book. You're gaining this excitement. You're gaining this insight. And then you're beginning to apply it contextually to your church. You go back, the people haven't invested the same amount of time you have. And it's hard for them to be excited and on board and ready to go, okay, let's, let's do that. They haven't, I call it crock-potted. They have not crock-potted this as long as you have. And therefore, moving people to where you have arrived is very, very difficult. 
So we're going to talk about how do we get them to where they want to do it, not to where they're just agreeing to do it, which is a whole different set of circumstances, okay? So let's kind of jump into where we are, and uh, we'll tackle today together. Okay, first up, we want to talk about, I've got an alternative title for this talk, and it is called Eight Steps for Significant Family Ministry Change. I often have a subtitle in here, Saving Frustrations and Resignations, because I've seen pastors many times want to see the church go a certain direction, and because they will not go, they resign and go to someplace else that they think is closer to what they're envisioning. Um, I have a number of ministry leaders come up to me on a regular basis and say, Hey, Ron, can you tell me a church that's doing family ministry really well? I'd love to go there. And so I usually begin talking to them, and I don't want to make them mad, but the course of my conversation, my goal is to ha- ask them a few questions. of like, okay, Bob, you want to go to this other church here that's doing family ministry really well. Do you consider yourself a leader or do you consider yourself a manager? And we kind of talk through that a little bit and we'll kind of dive in there. And I often ask them, I say, you know, I think you're a leader. And a leader helps people discover what they need to do and how to get there. A manager wants to go in there and assume the difficult work somebody else has already done. And so for us as ministry leaders, it really is about inspiring people to go the direction they need to go. And so if everybody left the churches that were difficult and went to the churches that were good, we'd have a bigger problem with churches that are already struggling. And so it's time that we step up and go, how do we affect that church that really needs help who doesn't see it yet? Okay, I knew Glenn would love this picture. Glenn's our Southwest pilot among us, by the way, in case you didn't get a chance to hear him talk yesterday. Glenn's been flying with Southwest for 30 years. This is a picture of what here? Anybody? Sully, Captain Sully, that's right. Anybody remember the uh, flight number and where they were going, where they were leaving? No, not quite. You're getting close. The Hudson River is a miracle on the Hudson, so therefore they were leaving LaGuardia and they were heading to Charlotte. That's exactly right. This is the U.S. Air Flight 1549, took place January the 15th, 2009. They took off out of LaGuardia, and within 60 seconds, they experienced a bird strike. Not only in one engine, but in both engines, which was very, very rare, you know, at that point. And Captain Sullenberger began to evaluate what options he had in mind. And if you remember, and by the way, we had the movie come out, what, two years ago? Really riveting movie. I would recommend it. My wife and I went, good, good date time. And I literally, it's one of those things, I felt like I was sitting on the edge of my seat watching this thing the whole time. It was not a long movie, but it was intense. And it was incredible. And they began to grill these two pilots. Well, why didn't you follow you know, the book over this? And Captain Sullenberg says, I didn't have time. He intuitively began to evaluate the situation. Do I have a chance to go back and return to LaGuardia? No. Do I have a chance to land this at Teterboro? No. And he began to look and he's like, my only option is to put it down into the Hudson. And by the way, it's one of the greatest, they don't call it, uh, what's, the, what's the term here? It's uh, ditching a plane, ditching, not, not crash landing. It wasn't a crash landing. He ditched the plane and literally every person on there, they accounted for every person in the landing. You say, why do you bring this up? I'm convinced that your church, if they have not already experienced a bird strike, you will sometime in the future. 
You have all this momentum going at some point, and that's what happened to this plane, U.S. Air Flight 1549. It had momentum carrying up. And the only reason why, I was sitting next to a Southwest pilot several years ago. I tell this story when I teach this, Glenn, by the way. I was sitting next to a pilot who wasn't flying. And I, I try not to bug them because I'm, I figure they get a million questions. But I did ask him one question. I said, how fast do we actually have to be going for us to get lift, you know, taking off? And he told me that day, now you can correct this, Glenn, if he wasn't. He told me somewhere between 145 and 148 miles an hour is what he told me that day. He said, that's what it takes to get lift. Well, once you get lift, you still have to have forward thrust to maintain lift. If not, the plane becomes what? A glider. It's a glider. And gliders have a limited amount of airtime left. If your church has not hit a bird strike, meaning you've had a problem, you've had disruption occur, maybe significant families have left, maybe the climate of your neighborhood has changed and you haven't figured out how to adapt to that, those are bird strikes. And if you experience one of those, your church is losing momentum and, be, and it has become, as an organ, organism, a glider that has a limited lifespan and it's going to cease to be a living being into something that is a shell of itself. My question for you, and the research has shown, most churches have three peaks to it. It grows, grows, grows over the life of it. It peaks and then it goes through a de decline could be some type of bird strike as we're discussing. And as it declines, something happens, either a change of pastor, a, you know, a revival, a catalyst, youth group resurgence, whatever happens, and it begins to grow again. And it does this for three peaks, and most churches will eventually die after that third peak. It has a limited span there. And so my question to you is, where are you on that lifespan? Now, we can break that cycle. There's many reasons to break that one. And sometimes that takes 70 years. Sometimes it takes 30 years. But those are the typical ebbs and flows of, of church life. My question for you is, where are you? Can you picture where you are? Are you in a growth mode? Are you kind of peaking? Are you leveling? What's happening here? Are we prepared for this? So... Um, we're going to face difficulties, and leadership can get us through that, and that's why the movie Captain Sully you know, was made, is because leadership made the right decisions there in a very difficult set of circumstances. By the way, a little tidbit here. I'm a bit of a book person. Do you realize soon after this uh, ditching of the plane, Captain Sully returned to the public library where he, where he lived, and he was returning a book that was water damaged, and he says, I owe you money for this, and the librarian recognized him and says, you're Captain Sully, you don't owe us anything, and took the book. But that's an incredible type of leader that he was in, in many ways. Let's talk through leadership here. We'll give you a couple of definitions here and give you some sources of where these have kind of morphed here. The first one says, the ability to influence people to passionately pursue goals that morally benefit the culture. Now, I've summarized these from a multitude of different people who have parts of this. You can probably recognize the morally benefit culture if you're a leadership guru in here. Uh, comes back from Joanne Shula. Also comes from uh, Burns, James McGregor Burns, that morally benefiting culture. But the goal of leadership is to influence people to passionately pursue. It didn't say to dictate. It didn't say to demand. Leaders influence a group of people to go a certain direction. There were two or three of us up here talking a moment ago in, about military. Uh, I had a chance to serve in the United States Army. Glenn served in the Marines. Any others served in the military in here? What branch, sir? Army. Army. What was your MOS? It was 98G, which is a linguist. 
wow, you're, you should come teach. You're, you're more brilliant. I, you know, I, I was infantry. It takes a, a very low <laughs> intelligence score to be in the infantry, okay? Uh, so linguists, any other serve in the military in here? Were you, officers, you were, Glenn, because I know you, you flew. Were you officer? Enlisted, okay. Enlisted. Well, I started out enlisted as a parachute rigger, and that was my way to help pay for my undergrad school. But then I went to uh, ROTC here in uh, Vanderbilt, and at the end, I remember them pinning that gold bar on my shoulder, and the master sergeant who was pinning on that bar, he says, Lieutenant Hunter, today, he said, you inherited authority. He said, tomorrow you go out and earn it. And that's what leadership really is about. It's not about having weight of authority on our shoulders. It's not about power. Anthony, come up here for a second, sir. I'm going to borrow you for a second. This is how I'll illustrate this for a moment. How many played the game Mercy when you were a child? Game Mercy. Oh, yeah. You, play, you never heard of Mercy? Go sit down, Anthony. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. I, I usually, oh, yeah, I know what Mercy is. You do? Okay. You're, that's right. I usually pick... One of the biggest guys in the room to illustrate this because th this makes sense. Okay? Okay. Now, first of all, he got the better grip. See him take the inside grip? Okay? He grabbed it. I can already feel he's posturing. Okay? If I were to say three, two, one, go, in just a matter of seconds, Anthony would have my fingers bent back and I would be whining and crying, going, Mercy, mercy, please stop. That's what it means, mercy. Your fingers okay? are bigger than mine. My, mine are bigger. That just means I have more weight around my girth than you do. Okay? <laughs> So at this point, if we were to say go, as children, when, when he... That's all, thank you. You're trying to break my fingers. I love you, Tony. You stop that. At the point that Anthony has my fingers bent back, not only could I say mercy, I, if he doesn't stop, I would be willing to agree to do anything that he wanted me to do. Like, okay, I'll do your homework. I'll do... You know how those childhood school, school, school boy games went out. Does that mean that Anthony is leading me, or does he have power over me? Yeah. Which one's more influential? Leadership. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when Anthony's not here, I will still want to do what he wanted to lead me to do. But if he's only the bully, then I don't want to do it. I want to get away with something. So when we understand leadership, please understand having the, the authority of children's pastor or student pastor or lead pastor, that's a title. It is not leadership. That's just authority. So we need to recognize that. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for not hurting me. Okay? The second one here says, help a community of people identify and face problems in order to find and adopt a solution. That's a variation of Ronald Heifetz's definition. Really good. Leadership without easy answers. If you've not read that book, really, really good one to, to take a look at. But that's what we want to do is help churches who are facing difficulties, usually because churches are getting older. Now, if you come from a larger church, you probably have multiple generations represented. And I often see in conferences people coming from larger churches. I don't want to have hands raised to identify where we are, but the number one populated uh, uh, audience for churches in America are churches between 70 and 100 or below that number, and many of them are aging out. And they're within a generation, generation and a half of ceasing to exist. Or I was in a conference speaking uh, this past weekend, and there was one couple in the, the area, in, in the, one of the breakouts I had, they had 15 left in their church, and they were all, remember yesterday we did generations? They were all in that greatest generation, literally, with a few spouses in the boomer generation. They are literally within 10, 12 years of not existing any longer. 
because they haven't figured out to minister generationally across those age lines. And so if you're beginning to age and you have mostly grandparents and mostly grandchildren, you're in a bird strike situation. You're gliding. And we got to figure out how to fill in that gap of those missing generations. I call it that hammock generation there or down to the younger ones. And so I'm asking you guys to become leaders today rather than go to where it's already been solved. So let's just compare. This comes, by the way, from uh, John Cotter. It's a variation from John Cotter. He wrote a uh, uh, Harvard Business Review article comparing what leaders and managers are about. And if you'd like a complete article, a complete copy of that article, I'll be glad to send it to you. Just give me your email address. But he says in here that leaders are direction setters and they also provide strategy. On the other side, managers aim is predictability and orderly results. Okay, I said this yesterday, I'll say this today too. Um, at the end of any time I give talks like this, I have no problem sharing my PowerPoint slides with you. All I need your email address. So if you gave me your email address yesterday, I'm going to just create a Dropbox tonight and I'll send out an invite to that Dropbox. So feel free to take pictures of the slides if you want to or I'll just give you copies. So at the end, if you just give me your information, I'll be glad to share that. Uh, the second area for leaders is they align people. They figure out how people can work best together. Um, I, I feel like I'm picking on Glenn a little bit. Um, and now it's a good time to ask that other question. Anybody work for another airline other than Southwest? Okay, good. Now I can talk about the other airlines for a minute. Southwest, like Starbucks, has figured out how to put people at the right place. I wrote a blog article one time, not everybody gets the green apron. And what I mean by that is Starbucks knows how to uh, interview people and find the people with the right skills and put them up front so they can handle multiple details but still have great customer relations. I'm fearful that if I were put in that environment, I would make you the best drink, but I would probably be a little grumpy to rude customers. And they probably wouldn't give me the green apron, okay? Um, Southwest has the same ability. They know how to put the right people at the counters, the right people. I fly Southwest because I like to have fun when I fly. It's, it's difficult enough to travel. It's not glamorous, as we all know. And they make it a little more enjoyable. But if you get on another flight, not only do they still roll that antiquated beverage cart down the aisle blocking you from getting to the restroom, or laboratory as they call it, but if you do something wrong, it's like they have the wooden spoon and they're ready to knock you on top of the head. I mean, they are really kind of rigid, I think is the most polite way I can say that. But Southwest has figured out how to align people. That's what leaders do. They want to align people and say, what has God given you strengths and talents to do? Let me put you in that place. What are you talented at doing? And having the ability to say no along the way. You know, I, I had some people when I pastored come and say, hey, pastor, I'd really like to do X. I know you're looking for somebody. I knew they weren't, you know, really set up to be that person. You got to think a little quick on your feet and say, you know what? You already do three things. I would rather it not get done than for you to take on one more. That was my polite way to say, no, this is not going to work if you stepped into that role. But leaders know how to say yes and no and align people and get them in the right place. Managers, on the other hand, they organize, they budget, and they staff. So leaders, if they told the right alignment and you gave them off to the managers, they know how to plug them in and use them in the right, right ways. Leaders motivate and inspire people towards results. It's really difficult when a leader stands up and says, we need more people for the nursery. That's sort of, you know, the wrong way to go about that. We're short nursery workers. Every church is short nursery workers, aren't they? 
But a leader stands up there and talks about the inspiration of, you know what? If you come and you work in the nursery, not only will you get a chance to love on a little one, you're going to allow a mom just a couple of hours of escape to go and be ministered to and soak something in. And you're going to give her great trust knowing that you're the one watching her little one. You get a chance to rock them and sing to them. You get a chance to change your diaper just before mom picks them up, knowing they're going to be in clean, ready to go home. That's inspiration is we're, we're, we're sharing it in a different vein. But a manager controls the activities and solves the problems. The manager will be the one going, okay, just before service is out, every baby in the nursery gets changed because moms don't want to pick the baby up going, oh man, my baby's been sitting in a wet diaper for an hour. Might have been five minutes, but we changed the diapers right at the end. Does that make sense? So the managers actually helps with that area. A leader copes with change and a manager copes with complexity. Now, which one of these is better? The answer is they're both important. We cannot function in leadership if we don't have management to do implementation. So it's not an either or, it is a both and. But I'm challenging you that if you're sitting in that head role of student pastor, children's pastor, middle school pastor, college age pastor, family pastor, worship pastor, lead pastor, (laughs) you have been assigned leadership roles. And you need to utilize people who are working around you to manage in there but the, notice the key sub-point here, you cope with change. How many industries today do not exist because they did not cope with change? Let's name some of them. TWA, okay? You're, you're having fun picking on other airlines. I'm loving it, Glenn. That's right. They didn't cope with change very well. What others? I was just thinking about the one that uh, they didn't get on top of digital. Motorola. That's Motorola. Kodak Eastman, by the way, a, a Tennessee-based organization over in East Tennessee. Kodak is, is a shell of what it once was. Blockbuster, yeah, the whole VHS industry. You know, Blockbuster didn't make the leap uh, in there. Uh, that's a really good one. What others out there? Say that again. Kmart. Kmart, yeah. More news coming out about Kmart and Sears. Let's just go ahead and put them all together. And J.C. Penney's. There's a, there's a question. Will, will any of those stores exist in the next three to four years? When Sears said this past week they're not renewing their contract with Whirlpool, therefore all their Kenmore appliances, that whole line's going away. Uh, they've sold off their Craftsman Tool line to Stanley. You know, those are two items that are significant disruptors in their business model. So yes, yes. So now you, next year you'll be able to buy Craftsman Tools at Lowe's because Stanley is a distributor into Lowe's. So in and, and interesting areas. Think, think for a minute as Christians, what have, what's disrupted us? Christian bookstores. How many work for Lifeway in here? Anyone? Okay. I, I'm in the publishing area, so I can, I can speak to this. Bricks and mortar Christian stores are declining. Uh, if you don't have to compare what part of the country you're in, whether it's Mardell's, Lifeway, um, Zondervan. Um, you, you know the stories. You've seen them come and go, and there's, there's fewer stores than what there were three years ago. In that, There's a disruption because Amazon's come along. Leaders understand how to cope with those changes. How do you change that model? Um, how do you take the strengths of what you have and, and move forward within your church? So I just want us to recognize that. Now here's the key question. Are churches being led or are they being managed? I'm convinced that some of our churches have not been evaluated to become healthy and therefore they're probably in need of hospice care because they're in that final leg of, hey, there's a a limited lifespan left in there. But 
I'm here to tell you that there are eight steps that we could begin to make that could save your frustrations and maybe even some resignations along the way. So let's look at these. This comes from two sources. I've adapted this, as I said uh, from earlier, John Cotter's Leading Change book, 2012. And so I've taken his principles and I've adapted it to a ministry model and I've written about it. But let me give you three authors. If you care significantly about change, there's three authors I would recommend you read. John Cotter, he's leading change. That would be the title of his book. Without, without a doubt, the secular world looks to John Cotter as the leading authority on change. Okay? As much as I've written and based it on it, I don't like John Cotter as much as I do some other authors, but he's the simplest one to teach to other people. That's why I use it. Um, I'll give you an ex- uh, a reason why in just a minute here. Um, Patrick Lencioni. Patrick Lencioni. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team is a good book that I would suggest that you read. But he's got variations. And basically, he's got a pyramid that he teaches from. And it's a foundation of trust up to the top of the pyramid. The fifth one is uh, gauging your results and performances. And he walks you through change and how you change the culture within your organization. Big, big fan of Patrick Lencioni in there. And by the way, when you read his books, he writes from a fiction perspective with true principles applied to fiction. So it's really enjoyable to read. Uh, It's like reading a case study, uh, a fun case study. He's just brilliant. Because he was first wanted to be a uh, movie, uh, uh, movie writer, write movies. That was his goal. So he's just a really brilliant writer. The third author, and the one that I actually like better than most, but more difficult to read and a little more complex, even though one of his principles is to make it simple, is Everett Rogers. Everett Rogers. The name of this book is called Diffusion of Innovation. And his last one is in its fifth edition. He wrote this back in the 60s. And the basic premise that Everett Rogers wrote from was he grew up in uh, Iowa and a lot of corn growers in Iowa. And his father was a, was a farmer, had, I mean, massive acreage of, of corn. And each year, different farmers in, in, incurred bird strikes, so to speak, difficulties with farming. And drought was one of the biggest ones. And if you're not, we're somewhat removed from the ag- agricultural world, but farmers, they must grow their crops, sell them to market, Bank that. Can you imagine getting your paycheck one time a year? You don't get it weekly anymore. You don't get it bi bi weekly or monthly. You get a one time annual paycheck. That's what farmers did. And so when they sold their crops, they got their whole paycheck for the year right there. And then they had to make it last for that next year. And part of making it last was reinvesting in the seed and reinvesting in the crops for the next year. Well, when you have a drought, then it's almost sudden like, hey, my, my paycheck just dropped by a third or by, by 25%. How do I make that work? Well, in the droughts, one thing that happened in the 50s was they invented a hybrid seed. And the hybrid seed dealt with being able to grow under conditions with less moisture, less rainfall. But some of the farmers, they're like, don't want any of that newfangled seed. That's, I can't trust it. Can't go there. And they began to go, I'm not going to do it. And Everett Rogers, as a young boy and a teenager, watched his friends' fathers lose their farms because they wouldn't adapt to a hybrid seed. He said, thankfully, his father did adapt. And it caused him, because he saw the hurt and pain 
that families went through losing everything, had to move out, went from you know a big house to a small house, those kinds of things. He wanted to know why when something worked, people didn't adopt to it. They didn't gravitate to it. And that's what gave him the inspiration to go on his lifelong journey of why do some people figure out how to move over to a solution while other people stick to tradition. That's part of the same aspect of why I spent my time in my dissertation work asking how does a leader lead people to change when they don't want to change? You know, how do we move there? And so I've got a, a lot of time invested in this. And therefore, I come back to John Cotter. He's got eight simple steps. The difficulty with Cotter and there's only one, is that John Cotter assumes the leader has a position of authority within the organization. It's the only difficulty within it. Uh, For example, you'll see when we walk through that, you have the ability to pull some people together to begin studying this. If you're just a person within the organization without a title, it's hard to do the eight steps. That's the difference. But because your ministry leader's in here, your children's pastors, your lead pastors, student pastors, you do have authority, therefore this works, and that's why I teach this. Number one, in the area of a st- that we, we got three of these steps that's creating a climate for change. Number one is to establish a sense of urgency. Um, Dr. Henry Cloud said it best when he said, people will not change until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. You know, I don't like change personally. P- people think they've seen me in business, they've seen me in ministry. They go, oh, Ron, Ron's a change agent. He, he likes to change. I hate change. I don't want to change unless it's absolutely necessary or important to our future. Because if it's working, it's not broken, let's stay with a system that's proven. But let's anticipate the brokenness before it breaks. That's a key area in there. And that's, uh, there's a really cool uh, commercial out right now that talks about this. The repairman shows up and says, hey, I'm here to fix your elevator. They said, it's not broken. I said, no, but our computers say that it's going to break after X number of lifts going on, so we need to come in here and fix it. That's what leadership does. It anticipates, hey, it's going to wear out. It's going to break. We should have seen the bricks-and-mortar bookstore issues coming long before the, the closes, closing of them happened with the uh, disruption of Amazon and others. Leaders know how to anticipate those and begin to change how we approach it. Number two, involve as many leaders as possible, okay? So I would say step one and step two sometimes go hand in hand because as a leader, you can pitch to your church a vision. Hey, let's look around here. We don't have as many children as we once had. We don't have as many teenagers as we once had. Our teenagers are leaving church. And you could actually poll them. How many in here have teenagers who are not in church anymore. Maybe when they went off to college, they stopped going to church. Maybe they're not part of it. Their job took them away. But your children are not, and and you begin to poll your church. You're using this to create a sense of urgency going, how are we going to keep our kids in a relationship with Christ? Which, by the way, is not the same thing as saying, how are we going to keep our church alive? It's not about keeping the church alive. It's about keeping people connected to Christ. But the two go hand in hand with that. And so we're establishing a sense of urgency by letting people see the pain that they're about to incur, or maybe the pain that already has, but they've already determined that it's normal. That's the scariest part is what's normal uh, for us. So one way to do that is to assess. Do an assessment. There are a lot of good assessments that are out there. Um, We have one that we offer. It's absolutely free. Uh, no expense, and it has been evaluated by about 
four different universities and seminaries as a valid instrument for how you're doing, how well you're doing in generational discipleship and family ministry. And you can find that at d6family.com forward slash DNA. And what you want to do at this point is to take about 15%, 20% of your church, your key teachers, your staff, your leadership council, your deacon board, whomever is our key influencers, couple of, couple of three lay members at large, the kind of people who would torpedo an idea if they're not on board. You know, you want the naysayers on board with you, not just your friends. That's the fallacy some leaders make as we, we create a guiding coalition. That's the term that John Cotter uses, a guiding coalition of people who agree with us. That's not leadership. That's managing people who already think the way you do. So pull people in who are opposed to the idea. And your goal is to help educate them to find the right solution. We use a phrase inside of our organization, and it's part of our culture now. We pursue what's right. We don't pursue being right. And there's a difference there. One was, I'm always arguing. If, it's, if I'm getting into an argument with Anthony, I just want to win the argument. You know, well, Anthony, I think our church needs to do so-and-so. And Anthony says, no, I think our church needs to do so What is right, not what is winning the arguments, the difference there. And so when you pull people together, if you remember that, that we want to pursue what's right and we want to discover it, then it helps a whole lot. And so we involve as many leaders as possible. We grab about 15, 20%. And here's what we begin to do with this. We, uh, we show them how to stretch. I've got a picture of what up here? What toy? Slinky dog. Absolutely. Slinky dog. What? Anybody watch Toy Story in there? You remember that one? He made that big turn out there, and he's like, oh, my back end's going to have to catch up from Albuquerque or wherever it is, you know? Um, Slinky Dog is the perfect picture of casting vision, literally the perfect vision, because as a leader, you need to get people out of where they are right now, and that means stretching them a little bit, and then pausing, and then waiting for the back end to catch up, okay? What we tend to do in leadership is that we begin to go, okay, here's where we need to go, and we point, and we stretch too far. And in Slinky Dog, one of the principles of Slinky Dog in leadership is we can stretch too hard and do damage to the spring. Don't raise your hands, but how many times have we seen a pastor come in and do damage to a church because of running too far ahead of the group? The pastor might be 100% right, this is where we need to go, but the speed in which they're trying to get there is too quick. And that old proverb has been assigned to John Maxwell and to Margaret Thatcher, but it's actually older than both of them. When you think you're leading and you look behind you and nobody's following, you're just going for a walk. We get too far out and we're just by ourselves up here. We're not leading effectively. And that's the difference there. And that's what the, the slinky dog does. I got a chance to write a book back in 2008 published by Thomas Nelson called Toy Box Leadership. That's one chapter out of it, but it's leadership lessons we've learned from toys we played with as a child. The chapter on ethics is the Rubik's Cube. We actually have Little Green Army Men as strategy and backward planning. Play-Doh is reverse mentoring, and so there's different toys that are in that, that, are in that book, but the, the vision is truly about the slinky dog in there. So we've got this group together. We're trying to create urgency. Step number three is to read all the passages in the Bible about generational discipleship and family. Now, you're going to go, hold it. This is longer than a meeting. Yes, it is. 
Here's what I recommend, highly, highly recommend, that when you start this process and you begin to recruit number two, the people on the team, you go to Bob and you say, hey, Bob, will you serve on our, and you name this team, this guiding coalition, you name it. You figure out a really cool title that your people will identify. Hey, will you serve on our uh, family ministry gladiator team or will you be part of our generational gladiator team? Whatever team name you want to give it. And here's what we want, here's the commitment. You're very, very honest with them. We're going to meet once a month, maybe after church, have coffee and refreshments. We're going to meet once a month for the next year. It's a longer commitment. And all we want you to do is we're going to be reading scripture and we'll probably tackle a book together and we'll discuss it. And at the end of that time, we'll begin to formulate a strategy that's best for our church contextually. We're not going to copy a book. We're not going to copy some program. We're not going to copy some box, you know, saying this is the way we need to do it. We're going to figure out what works for our context, following key principles of scripture and principles we learn from books. Bob, would you pray about serving on this team? I didn't say, would you serve? I said, will you pray about? By the way, that's a good tool in recruiting teachers. I don't come over here to Steve and go, Steve, we need a warm body in the junior boys class. <laughs> the other guy ran out kicking and screaming and has you know, said he would never be back to our church ever again because of little so-and-so. I don't come, that's not an inspirational recruiting. It's Steve. I know you have had great boys in your home. You and your wife have raised great boys. Would you consider pouring into some young guys, you know, and kind of give a chance to be a dad again in this brief little moment? You'll get a chance to teach a lesson. We've got a curriculum teacher's book here. I want to give it to you, let you just kind of thumb through this. Will you just kind of show up next Sunday? I'm going to be teaching or so-and-so is going to be teaching. I just want you to kind of experience the class. And for the next week or two, would you pray about being a teacher, and by the way, while you're praying, Steve, would you go talk to a friend of yours and see if they think you're suited to be in this role? Now, what that does is that gives Steve a couple of things. Number one, it doesn't allow him to say no on the spot, and it doesn't allow him to say yes on the spot, which is really key here. What it allows him to do is go, okay. Now, if he goes back and he talks to his best friend, or you can say, hey, talk to one of the pastors and see if you know, this is right for you. Well, Steve can go back to his friend. Let's say he goes over to Tony, who's been his best friend in the whole world. And, and Steve's talking to Tony, and he says, Hey, you know, the family pastor asked me if I would teach the junior age boys. And Tony says, Hey, Steve, you'd be great at that. But you know, Steve, I know you and your wife are going through some marital issues right now. And only Tony would know that. Then it would give Steve a chance to come back and say, You know what, Ron? I really am honored that you said that. He doesn't need to disclose to me. Why? They say, I have to say no now, but maybe in a year or so, I might be ready for it. And Tony will help him work that out. Another pastor would help him work that out. But giving him that time to pray about it really does help. Many people who are qualified are ready to say no on the spot. The people who are not qualified are often ready to say yes on the spot. <laughs> I've noticed that. But what it does is, let's say that Steve is qualified, but he's not confident about doing it. He goes to Tony, no issues in Steve's life. And Steve says, man, I just don't know. And Tony goes, dude, I've seen you with your kids. I've seen you coach ball. You would be great in this. And Steve's like, you really think? And yeah, he begins to counsel him and mentor him and go, yeah, right there just for five minutes. And Steve comes back and says, hey, I'm not sure, but I'd sure like to try it. 
That's the difference that this kind of situation makes. So when you begin recruiting for this team for step two, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to have them pray about it, think about it. And you go and say, hey, I'm really wanting all of our teachers. I realize not all of our teachers can participate, but I really love for all of our teachers to be on this. Will you pray about being on this team? Because this is the team that's going to shape the future of our church. Very few people want to decline that invitation because they're like, I need to protect our church. I'm worried about the dolies on the back of the women's class over 80, you know. There's, there's little things they want to protect along the way. So getting those people involved really does help. Did I step on a sore subject for a church? I, I recognize that because I pastored a church that had those one time, okay? On folding chairs, nonetheless. So you get this, this, this leadership team together, and the first thing I want you to do is tackle all the passages in the Bible that deal with generational discipleship. Say, how do I find those? Well, there's several books that have them listed. Again, the DNA uh, has one chapter dedicated to that, Autopsy of a Dead Church. There's a number of great books out there, and I've, I can give you a whole list. You can go out there and just begin to tackle which passages and say, hey, we want to read these together, and you give a reading list to the group, and they read them on their own. That way they can pick whatever translation they want, because I know there's going to be specific ideas even over that item, but they read them, and then when you come back together, you talk through, hey, what did you discover in Scripture? What was evident? And you literally just lead them in that meeting once a month. It's not reading during the meeting. It's deciding and discussing what has happened from what you've gleaned from the reading. But no decisions are being made. Here's a key, key component. If, if they come back into the room and Anthony says, Oh, Pastor, we read in this we got to do this. No, no, not yet, Anthony. We're writing down ideas of what we've got to do. We're not making a decision until we've read through everything for a year. Now, key, key area here. When you're asking an organization to make a significant change, if people don't like that change, they're going to posture for the vote immediately. So the reason by saying, Anthony, we're going to read for a year, we're not going to make any changes for a year, because we might read something next month that makes us question our decision this month. We want to have the whole idea in mind before we make these changes. I went to our board of directors at Randall House and D6 Family Ministries about 10 years ago with a very tough strategic change for our organization. And I knew if we'd have taken a vote on the spot, it may or may not have passed, but it would have been very contentious among our board of directors because it would have really erupted in some strong disagreements. And it was a significant change for us. And I asked our board, who meets twice a year, if they would talk about this topic for an hour to an hour and a half every meeting for five years. I said, I just want us to talk about it and not vote on it for at least five years. Now that may sound like an eternity to you, but I knew how big of a deal this was for our organization, and I was willing to wait eight or ten years for it. But if we didn't start the conversation, it would be 10 or 15 years. And so I asked them to do that. Now, what I'm asking you to do in this change here, instead of five years, I'm asking you to spend one year. What you're doing is you're praying, you're reading, you're educating, you're allowing the people in that group to have the same experience you're getting by attending two conferences. You're here getting how many hours of instruction? How many, when you walk away from this conference, how many hours of instruction are you going to have? Yeah, 
So we're asking you to help them have a conference experience without necessarily going to a conference. You're walking away ready because you've already percolated, you've crockpotted, you've processed this. You've got to help that group of people. That's what leadership does. Process the same way you did being at a conference or reading three books on the topic. So you're bringing the conference material to them. You're helping them discuss it. So you're starting out with scripture. Then you may agree to read a book together. And again, I'm here sharing from the DNA perspective, the DNA of D6. It's been out now for about three years. A lot of churches have done exactly this plan with the book. And so after they read that first month, all the passages from the Bible and talk about those, then they tackle one chapter a month for the rest of the year. And at the end, it has discussion questions, and there are three five-minute videos that you can watch, complimentary, that at the end has just discussion questions. It doesn't say you need to do X. It says, in your situation, where do these principles fit in? And your people, this guiding coalition, we can go, oh, this fits for us, this fits for us. But again, no decisions are being made. We're working through this over a period of time. Now, once we've read all the passages in the Bible, we're tackling a book. At the end of that year, now we begin to formulate a strategy, and we communicate that strategy for both church and home. I need you to hear the second part of that. A strategy for church and what? Home. We're really, really, really good at communicating and formulating strategies for what happens on campus. But we stink at helping parents keep alive what happens on campus all through the week. That's the part churches are missing. There are wonderful leaders. I'm talking top 25 largest churches in the United States that I have interacted with who can't think on the second part of this equation. They do excellence at church beyond anybody's imagination. In fact, Doug Fields was overheard saying about four, three or four years ago, he said, and, and you, you guys know who Doug Fields is, student pastor out at uh, Saddleback. He's not there anymore. He's doing his own ministries and doing it really well. But he said if he had it to do over again, he wouldn't build it quite as cool and quite the same way because it marginalized the power of the apparent. The parents couldn't compete. The church groups have gotten so big, so strong, they come to you going, oh, you got the coolest thing, you got the music, you got this. There's nothing I can do that competes with that. And they disabled the parents' ability to disciple. When ministry leaders figure that out, it's huge. It's huge. And so what we want to do is ask ourselves, not only what can we do well at church, but what can we help our parents do well when they're not at church? Deuteronomy 6, that passage says, when you get up in the morning, when you go out into the way, when you sit down at a meal, when you tuck them in bed at night. We don't tuck our kids in bed at church. We don't get up at church. It may feel like it on some sunrise services, but we're not getting up at church. We do sit down and have meals at church, but that's not our primary place we eat. Deuteronomy 6 says, as we do life. Engage your kids. As we do life, on the way to ball practice, on the way to the recitals, on the way to school, on the way to dropping them off for their job, we are engaging them in conversation. 
And some of those conversations have biblical carryovers. And so when they're talking about life, if we can pull back a lesson from what we learned in a life group, or we can pull out something that the pastor said in the message on Sunday, or the student pastor said, and you know what it is, it becomes powerful application to everyday life. That's what as we go means. So we need to formulate a strategy for our church, but we also need to formulate one for the home. In doing so, then we're setting parents up for success, which is step number five. We don't only want to have success as a staff, as leaders, we want to give parents wins. They so desperately like like a spiritual win. The wins they feel is when they engage in sports for dads. When moms are able to counsel counsel their kids over relationship issues. Those are the only wins they're really getting. Can we set them up for wins in a biblical, spiritual discipleship matter? Now, I am a big fan, and there are three or four major companies out there that do this. But one way you can set them up for that win is to teach lessons where everybody's learning on the same biblical page. Lifeway has a curriculum that does that. We have a curriculum that does that. David C. Cook has a curriculum that does that. There's a couple of others out there that has one. Group has one that does that as well. But if you put people on the same page, every age on the same page is the way we refer to it, when you get home, if some pain point comes up with life, I can refer back to the lesson I know my child was taught and bring it up. But if they weren't taught it, then I could talk about my own lesson, but it won't mean as much to them. Now, I know for some of us out there, you think, well, our church is, is, is thinking about writing lessons based on the pastor's sermons. That's a noble idea. That's a noble idea. I can, think of, I can think of a lot of, thank you, thank you. I can think of a lot of other adjectives as well. Having, having consulted with a lot of churches along the way, when Elevate Church, the size they are, has decided not to do that any longer because they can't sustain that model and they're running 15,000, 16,000 people, don't think your church can tackle that well, okay? It's just not feasible, Because you forget there are 11 different age groups in your church. You're not just writing for adults and teenagers. If you want every age on the same page, you want the children being taught the same. And can you do it with the same incredible graphics that some people have major departments for? I mean, yes, you're that size. My question to you, if you're a student pastor, why are you writing your own curriculum instead of spending the time relationally developing disciples within your your youth group? If you're investing in the youth and and their parents, you don't have time to write. And you know, I know what you're saying. Well, there's no perfect curriculum out there. You're right. There is no perfect curriculum out there. We are a curriculum company, and we realize that as good as we think ours is, the moment I hand it to Steve, Steve goes, yeah, I really wish they'd done X. And he's right. But what Steve doesn't like, Anthony loves about our curriculum. But he doesn't like something else about it, but the same thing Steve does love. There's no perfect curriculum. A curriculum is only as good as the teacher who teaches it. A good teacher can take a horrible curriculum and make it special. And a bad teacher can make a great curriculum and make people scratch their heads going, what in the world are they teaching? So my suggestion to you is pick a curriculum that puts every age on the same page. Ask people to adopt it as part of the wins for the parents at home. And here's where you're going to run into some rub. It's going to be the 
grandparents, the older, the seniors in your church. They're going to go, yeah, I don't have kids. I don't need to worry about it. We want to study a book of the Bible. You know, yes, I get it. I want to study a book of the Bible. We don't need curriculum. We're just going to study the book of Genesis. I was literally in a church in Missouri about a year ago. And when we walked in, they had a whiteboard, which was encouraging. It wasn't a chalkboard. They had a whiteboard on the wall. And they had the attributes of God listed. And I think there were like eight or nine of them listed. And the teacher stood up and says, he welcomed us as guests. He recognized that myself and my colleague was from the curriculum company of his denomination. He says, we're not using the curriculum. We apologize. We're studying the attributes of God. We're on number four today, and we've been in this study for six months. Yeah, your eyebrow went up. My eyebrow did the same thing. I tried my best to keep the poker face in there. I'm like, wow. How does a guest feel welcome and not left behind in that kind of a situation? You know, I find people, well, we're studying the book of Genesis. Well, I'm on chapter four. How long have you been in it? Nine months, you know. Wow. And you're going to go through the whole book over, you know, before you all die? I'm just amazed by that. Um, So what you want on a Sunday morning is a class that a guest or somebody new to your church can walk in and feel like, oh, I'm not left behind. I don't feel like I need to go back and restart this. And I can jump in at any point through this process and and be good. I mean, if you're studying Beth Moore, I love Beth Moore, but she does typically 12-week studies. By the time you get to week three, they're going to feel left behind. Beth Moore is a great elective study, not a good life group study. Same thing with financial peace and so forth. So think through a win for church and a win for at home. And if you're all aligned, are you giving them tools to take home to have those conversations? That's a huge, huge deal. Then number six, the lead pastor leans in regularly from the pulpit. If your lead pastor is not on board, this is probably not going to go well. Give you some examples. For those of you who sat in yesterday, there's some of the same examples, but they're really important. A lead pastor can lean in when you're teaching family ministry by transitioning the stage into various settings as part of Deuteronomy 6. Can you grab two seats out of the the minivan, putting them on stage? Maybe drop in a rearview mirror with one of those green Christmas tree air fresheners up there, and you just kind of have this setting. What does it look like when we're driving in a car? How can the conversations go? And you talk about how do you deal with the earbuds, you know? Well, those are normal parts of life, but a pastor can lean in for five minutes in the middle of their message.